Uh, we're glad you're here this morning. As I said, uh, we are in the second Sunday of Advent. If you've never been around and seen Advent or participated um, during this season of the year, our church family, we, we kind of stop all of our normal um, teaching rhythms and that kind of thing to focus on these four Sundays leading up to Christmas on the four themes of Advent. So uh, the first one is the theme of hope. And last week we talked about how hope rises from within us and helps us to think about what Jesus has done for us um, and what he is doing in us and um, what he will yet there we go, what he will yet do for us. So we light these candles as symbols, just kind of visual cues uh, to, to spark us, to say, oh yes, this is hope. This is what we're concentrating on. And then this week, um, we're lighting the candle of peace. And we'll talk about that today, focus on that particular theme today. During this um, sermon series of Advent, um, I said last week, say again this week, we're uh, thinking about uh, these themes from the book of Psalms, kind of Christmas songs, if you will, uh, from the book of Psalms. And so um, if you have your Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth up there uh, in the back there. Please feel free to go grab one if you need to grab one. Um, you can borrow it or keep it as the need it's there. If you're a user of the Bible app, um, you can uh, open that up and find our live event and track along with all of the uh, scriptures and sermon notes. There's a link for giving and a link to sign in. Hey, I'm a guest here, that kind of thing. All of that's happening there. Would love for you to uh, follow along with us. So Psalm 85, I got to tell you, it's a weird psalm. Can that be okay? Can I say that about the Bible? Um, it's a weird psalm, and I would never normally tee this kind of thing up uh, in terms of that and preach, but I just think this is what I was supposed to do, because Psalm 85 is in a group of several psalms uh, that's, that are called Psalms of Lament. That may probably not a word you, you use this week, um, except for maybe if you were working a crossword or something, but lament is one of those things where um, they, the psalmist starts, and, and they have this both individual and corporate expression of grief and sadness before God. It was a lament, and some people think, well, I don't really know that I'm supposed to be sad before God. And if that's the case, if that's kind of what's rumbling in your soul as you think about sadness before God, I just want to maybe think through this with you. Some people think that they can't be sad before God because God, if you will, is some sort of tyrant that nobody is sad before me, only happy dancers. You know what I mean? Like uh, only happy things happen before God and you come before God thinking about God in that way and you think, oh, I got to at least put on a happy face to make sure that he doesn't get too angry. Some of you think to yourself, I can't be uh, sad before God because it's out of sorts. It's out of phase, if you will, with what uh, is actually going on. Anybody ever had this happen in their family where uh, maybe a little one skins a knee and the volume is significantly higher than the injury calls for. Anybody ever had that before? Where, I mean, it is just like level 15, 180 decibels blow your eardrums out for just, and you just think to yourself, like, it's just a skin. Like so, and some people you think about God maybe in that way. Like if I come before God sad, that's what He's going to say to me. Like suck it up, Buttercup. It's just a skin knee. Uh, some people think it's not so much that it's that, but maybe just maybe I can't come before God sad because He's so distant He won't care anyway. Or God only wants me to be happy. Therefore, to be sad is the only thing that would make Him unhappy with me. No matter how you come and how you approach grief and sadness before God, I just want to say one of the great gifts of the Psalms, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but one of the great gifts of the Psalms is we have the full range of human emotion represented 
in the Psalms. And so we start today with this kind of crazy psalm. Um, it, it ends up resolving in, in, in a good way. We'll see that in just a second. But it starts with this, this song of lament, this song of sadness, this, this song of, hey, there's not... And you, if you think to yourself, are you sure this is right? Are you sure this is biblical? I just want to remind you, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, right? Like a lament. And so I, I want to give permission for you to interact with this and kind of make the face like I did several times this week. And the more I got into it, the more I thought, man, I should have picked a different psalm. Here we go, Psalm 85. Lord, verse 1, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Don't miss that all of the verbs there are past tense. He's looking backwards. The psalmist, the group, as they sing this song, are looking backwards. Verse 4 is where the plea starts. So God, restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I want to just offer these couple of things um, on lament. First of all, I think in, in terms of this particular psalm, one of the things that it teaches us is that lament can be and often is the beginning of understanding peace with God. Like that kind of sadness, that kind of lamenting before God is the beginning of understanding peace with God. What do you mean by that? Well, because they're, they are here in this text, they are lamenting over the lack of peace with God. God, here's what it says. Remember back in verse one, uh, you were favorable to all of your land. You did. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. So you have this sense that they, they, they know that there's no peace with God. And the question comes up, why is there no peace with God? Well, they answer that too in verse, flip the page here, uh, in verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. They lament over the lack of peace and they, meant, they lament over the reason for the lack of peace. And the Bible has a, reason, has, a, has a word for that reason that there is no peace and that word is sin. They know that there is sin in their lives, in their, uh, you know, among their people, and guess what? Um, they lament as a result of that. Furthermore, they're not only lamenting that there's no peace and that because of sin, it, it is no peace. They're lamenting the fact that God has responded to that. God's response to that, and what has he done? He has uh, been angry, it says in verse 5, uh, you know, he has... Uh, prolonged, if you know, will you prolong your anger for all generations? Lament over God's response to it, even when it's right. What is God's response to sin? It's always that kind of um, uh, holy, righteous anger and the outworkings of that to sin. It always is the case. And some people walk in, maybe you walked in today, maybe you live in the house you live in, the neighborhood you live in, the workplace you live in, whatever, where people consistently, um, the, the refrain of their lives is, hey, God's not, that, God's not that serious about sin. He's just not. And if, if you and I think that God doesn't punish sin, um, we would rightly then wonder just how serious he is about it. But the truth is, is that all throughout the Bible, 
We have all sorts of testimonies, all sorts of stories, all sorts of pictures of how God deals with sin, how he pours out his righteous indignation and anger and frustration um, upon peoples, okay? Um, I say that to say this. He is not, don't miss this, he is not infinitely tolerant of our rebellions and our idolatry. He's not. There is a moment when, you know people who parent like this? Hey, Johnny, I want you to go do that. Johnny's still there. One, two. On occasion, folks, God does get to three. I want you to know that. That's important to know. Why? Because if he's serious about sin, then he will get to three and he will act accordingly. That's what I'm telling you. And again, the Bible is replete with examples of what happens when he does. He does not infinitely tolerate um, our rebellion and our idolatry. He just doesn't do that. And so you have all sorts of expressions of this. Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, about verse 16 or so, Abraham in the conversation, and God speaks, and he says, hey, these folks right here, they have not yet filled up the full measure of their sin. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, something very similar, very similar language. They haven't yet reached the full measure, and you think to yourself, well, see, that's Old Testament, right? No, 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 that's not just Old Testament. Jesus in Matthew 23 says something very similar about the Pharisees. What you're doing is you're filling up the full measure of your sin, you knuckleheads. More or less, that's what he says. Uh, and then Paul picks up the same, same kind of language in, in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. These people who were preventing them from preaching the gospel, he says, what are they doing? They are just fulfilling, they're filling up the full measure of their sin. And so I just want you to know that, that there is a sense in which lament is the beginning of the understanding of peace with God. Why? Because it helps us understand that God is very serious about sin. Our world would love for God not to be serious about sin, but I'm telling you that he is. And therefore, lament is the appropriate posture of a sinful people who approach God. And that's what we see these folks do again. In, in verse 4, restore us again, O God. Of our, they, what are they looking for? God, would you just help us? Restore us. It is the appropriate posture of people approaching God. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Verse 7, show us your step. You get the idea that they're showing up, and the only thing that they're bringing to the table is the, is the sin that they've committed that caused this conversation to happen in the first place. And They're just pleading for God. God, here I am. I'm sorry for all that is happening in me and around me and because of me. And I don't have much to offer except to say this. Would you restore us again? Would you help us again? Would you show us your love again? Lament. It's the beginning of understanding of peace with God. And it is an appropriate, the appropriate posture for sinners who approach it. And the good news is, um, when we come that way to God, uh, God doesn't throw us out on our ear. Are you grateful for that? Um, just jot this down, but listen to it. It's Psalm 51, verse 17. Um, David is in the middle of a whole psalm of lament. He's confessing his sin with Bathsheba before God. He was an adulterer and then committed murder to cover up adultery. Sound like a you know plot to law and order or something like that, but that actually happened in King David's life. He ends his psalm of confession like this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
We come before God, oh God, here I am, messed up, broken, all these kind of things. I I don't have anything to offer you, God. No excuses, no blame, shifting, no nothing else. I'm just standing here. That's all I got. And the good news is we're not thrown out on our ear. He does not despise those, he says in Psalm 51, 17. That then sets us up. That kind of posture before God sets us up for this next step. Because if you're standing before God, go, here I am, God. I don't know what all's going to happen. I don't know what you're going to unleash on me, but here I am. What would you want in that moment? You would want God to speak. And when he does, look at what happens. Verse 8. Let me hear what the Lord God will speak. Here I am. Now just let me hear what you're going to say to me. For he will speak what? What does he say? He will speak what? He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So he speaks peace to his people. He speaks, let me hear what the Lord is going to say. He speaks peace to his people. What? What could be better than that right there? I mean, you have, here you are, laid bare before God with all of your struggle and all of your sin, and you approach Him lamenting the fact that here you are standing in this particular way before Him. And what would you want Him to say? You are worse off in a worse position than you ever could imagine. And yet, what are you hoping for? More than you ever dare dream, you want Him to say something to you, and you want it to be peace. And what does God say? He speaks peace to His people. Speaks peace to his people. What, what is this peace that he speaks? He, it's this shalom. We've talked about this before, even last week and the week before. Just bring it up one more time. Uh, but it's, it's shalom. It's this wholeness from God that kind of makes us whole. The picture is fabric woven together. When it frays, we have this sense of injustice, of a lack of shalom. But when it's together, when things are working like they're supposed to, that's peace. That's wholeness. That's goodness. And, and God's looking at your life and my life and your soul and my soul. And he's saying, listen, there are some fraying edges here. Let's, I, I, want, I want to speak peace. I want to speak wholeness to you in this moment right there. Um, what, what confidence do we have before God that this would be the thing that he would say? Well, he said so, number one. Secondly, he's done it before, right? And if we have confidence that he's done it before, then what, what is our hope that he will do it again in our lives? We show up, oh God, here I am. You've done it before. God, would you please do it again? And that's in fact how the Bible talks about this all the way up, right? Will you um, not, verse six, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation, verses six and seven there. Um, the source of our confidence is he's done it before and he'll do it again. Now, what we can't do is take this and kind of broadly apply it universally. You can't just put it up on a billboard and say, hey, God speaks peace to you because to whom does he speak peace? What does it say in the middle of verse 8? For he will speak peace to his people. His people. He will speak peace to his people. So these are the who are his people. Not perfect people. Heavens no. They're, they're getting ready to turn away from God again. That's why it says, but let them not turn back to folly. It's not perfect people that he speaks to. It's his people. These people that he has claimed. These people that he has brought to himself. These people that um, he has wrapped his loving arms around and, and called his own. And if you're in here this morning, you think to yourself, yes, 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 this is me. I know that I'm a, 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 a child of God. And you stand before God going, oh God, here I am though. Child of yours who has messed up something fierce, and yet what do you have? You have a God who speaks peace to you in that moment right there. He speaks peace to his people. Um, 
the, the danger, if you will, of turning back is real because, you know, you don't listen in the first place. That's why he says, let them not turn back to his folly. This is the second part, though, and I think this is the great temptation. I want to just spend a minute. As God speaks peace to his people, this kind of wholeness that makes us whole, what we don't want to settle for is this kind of false peace, this faux peace that, that comes from convincing everybody else that we are okay. Because if I can convince everybody else that I'm okay, then I must really be what? Okay. Now, how does this express itself and work itself out? Any number of ways. Let me just take a couple of hot shots here. You ready? You're walking down the hall here to church, um, in Sunday school, small group, wherever. They say, oh, tell me how you're doing. Oh, yeah, we're good. Just busy all the while. Your soul is just cracked and dry and kind of falling apart. People look down in the soil of your life and you got those big cracks that swallow small children like in you know, the desert where it just gets so dry in there and you think to yourself, I'm not really okay. But if I can convince you that I'm okay, then maybe, just maybe, I'm okay. Church is a dangerous place to be honest, folks. But here's the deal. If we choose to um, settle for that kind of faux peace, then all we're doing is perpetuating something that, really, that is not real for you and for me. But instead, if God speaks peace to his people and you receive his wholeness in your life, that that not only frees you to be honest with God, but also honest with everybody else. Can I just tell you, one of the great gifts of the Psalms for you and for me is it covers the entire gamut of human emotion. And so we find David and other psalmists saying things to God and about God that in polite company you would never say. Some of the stuff that is said in the Psalms, people go, oh man, you say that? And the answer is, he said it. They said it. They said it out loud. They said it in writing. They didn't try to delete it. They preserved it. So when we receive, when we show up, God, here I am lamenting, and God speaks peace over us, when we receive that peace, it allows us then to be honest with God and with those around us. We don't have to settle for that kind of fake peace, that faux peace that says, oh, if I can convince everybody else I'm okay, then I must be okay. We don't have to settle for that, but a peace that's based on appearance. Instead, we can live in and experience genuine peace, and that works itself works itself out in a kind of honesty with God and with others. If I can make a confession, I think it's sometimes a funny exercise that I do, one of those things that's in your brain. You can, I, if, if, if the prophets, I'm talking about like all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, you know, all those folks, if, if they were alive today, here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that they would be Christian hip-hop artists. I really do. Like, the Christian hip-hop artists of today say things in ways that remind me so much of the prophets. If, if today, if the, if the psalmists were writing today, I'm also convinced that they would be country music artists. No kidding. They're storytellers. It's a beautiful, they're very, very honest about these things. Right, and, and, you know, and I'm not talking, anybody Florida Georgia line in here because we're going to vote you out of the church immediately. Because uh, that's not real country music. I'm talking about country music. Tell a story, you know, with some twang, right? I mean, deep down, like you, there ought to be a banjo involved. You know what I mean? So, I, so somebody sent me a song this week, and I listened to it and read the lyrics and listened to it and read the lyrics, and I thought, I'm almost ready to turn my radio back on and listen to country music again. If this is what, 
It is called a dive bar in Dahlonega. Anybody? Ashley McBride, dive bar in Dahlonega? Nobody? Two, two people. You're my people. Listen to this, and I, I promise you, you can locate yourself in this song. This is when peace gets spoken and received, and then honesty is the outworking of that. Listen to this. To the bag-packed first love lever. Anybody? How about this one? To the heart-cracked double-down dreamer. Didn't work out, but I'm going for it anyway. To the homesick for grass that's greener and a slice of mama's peach pie. Ooh, some of you are like, oh, I just found me. I said this one out loud to some of our staff this week, and we laughed and laughed. Ready? To the flat broke couch cushion gas money. Some of us have been there. The worker bee that ain't getting no honey. Missing someone all the while running, gunning for the brighter light. Here's the chorus. One more verse. To, to the breakups that didn't break us, to the breakdown, wrong turn that takes you to a little dive bar in Dahlonega. Hear a song from a band that saves you. This is the line. It's a hidden rock bottom. Smoke them if you got them. Nothing's going right. Man, I'm trying to make the best of the worst day kind of thing. It sounds like standing before God going, that's all I got here. Receiving peace, and that invites more honesty, so much so that you get verse 3. If this is you, don't raise your hand. We've all got a number that we don't want to drunk dial. And a good friend that we ain't seen in a while. One more slow dance left in these boots and a chance of putting down new roots. Here's to the breakups that didn't break us. The breakdown, wrong turn that takes you to a little dive bar in Dahlonega. Hear a song from a band that saves you. Hitting rock bottom, smoke them if you got them. Nothing's going right, making the best of the worst day kind. That sounds a little bit like, let them not turn back to their folly. (laughs) Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. I am doing the absolute best I can, that glory may dwell in our land. I'm telling you that if we settle for faux peace, let me ask you this question. Who doesn't want to be in a relationship with a God with that kind of honesty? Would you rather fake it? Instead, wouldn't you rather... Be able to say to God, hey, here I am lament, again, lamenting. It's a smoke them if you got them. I'm doing the best I can on a bad day kind of night, God. And hear him speak peace, and that invites even greater honesty from you. Who wouldn't want to be in a relationship with a God like that? Who wouldn't want to be in a church with people like that? We listen 
We lament. It's true. And it's, it's right. And God doesn't tolerate sin forever. And when we bring our stuff before him, then we, then we listen. We position ourselves to listen. And the thing he does, when he hears our lament, what he does is he speaks peace to his people. He speaks peace to his people. We don't have to settle. We can live genuinely and honestly before him. There's an outcome of that peace. And then lastly, as a result of that, when we listen for peace, it, it, it ends up in an invitation. Verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Just pause here. Steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hesed. We talked about this um, last week. This kind of covenant love with his people. He set his affection on his people, not because they were so lovely or lovable, but because he chose to do so. Verse 10, and faithfulness, that is his commitment to fulfilling and keeping his promises. That kind of obedience, if you will, of God to what he has said. Righteousness, the middle of verse 10, righteousness, his rightness and peace. There's our shalom again, that wholeness. Righteousness and wholeness kiss each other. They greet one another. They embrace, we might say. Can I ask a question? How how can a God who's right and holy look down upon you and me who are not right and holy and speak peace? How is that possible? Without surrendering his holiness without surrendering his rightness. Like if, if I'm terrible and God speaks wholeness to me, and I mean, does that mean God's a liar or that he doesn't care about the things that are actually going on? No. No, that's not what it means at all. It means that God must have a way for righteousness and peace to kiss, for, for um, steadfast love and faithfulness to meet. And the invitation that he has for you and for me is to believe. Believe what? Believe that those two things can meet. Believe that righteousness and peace can greet one another. How is this even possible? Verse 11. Faithfulness, this kind of commitment or obedience, springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. There's an invitation to believe. What are you believing that these two things are not at war, but in fact, God has figured out a way to make it okay, to make them um, at peace with one another. Look at verse 11 again. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks from the sky. How then, how, how, how is that possible? If you're a follower of Jesus in here, you might think to yourself, no, this is starting to get, like there's something kind of out there that I can see, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Let's try to bring it into focus a little bit. Faithfulness, uh, obedience, commitment is springing up from the ground. And righteousness is looking down from the sky. One more time. There's an obedience, a faithfulness, a commitment that's coming up from the ground. Being lifted up from the ground. And righteousness that is looking down from the sky. Is it starting to come into focus yet? This is, this is a foreshadow of the cross where Jesus himself was lifted up from the earth, the Bible says. On the cross. And the Father, the righteous one, was looking down from above, so and not not surrendering his righteousness, but instead looking down so much so, remaining, retaining his righteousness, being righteous, so much so that he looked down, and as Jesus, he had to turn his face away from the the Son, so much so that Jesus would say, oh, Father, I mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he say such a thing? Because on the cross, the Bible says, he became sin. He bore our sins in his body. 
God's commitment to save a people was so clear and He was so committed to that that Jesus Himself took on our sin, took on your sin so that we could be made right with God. There is a forgiveness that is offered not because you're forgivable, but because Jesus has purchased forgiveness for you. There is a right standing with God, a peace that can be spoken, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus has accomplished this for you. His obedience rose from the ground and righteousness, the Father's righteousness, looked down from the sky. This is Philippians 2. Listen to this passage. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to, tight-fisted, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became, or being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, there's that word, to the point of death, even death on the cross. The invitation is to believe. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, this is the day that you can do that and be forgiven of your sin and experience new birth, this kind of eternal life that was symbolized in the baptism earlier. If you're a follower of Jesus already, this is an invitation to believe, to say, hey, listen, I don't have to walk around carrying my stuff. Somebody's already carried it for me. It's Jesus. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. And it's not only an invitation to believe, especially for followers of Jesus in here, it's an invitation to rejoice. Listen, yes, the Lord will give what is good. Verse 12, our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, make his footsteps away. Don't you want what is good? Don't you want what is increasing? Don't you want a way to walk that's filled with rightness and goodness? Don't you want to be a part of that? That's an invitation to joy. That's an invitation to rejoice in what God has done, is doing, and will yet do. So I'm going to offer a prayer for us. If you're here this morning and you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to have that conversation with you. I'll be at the back. Tyler's back there too. Um, the Folks are going to come up and lead us in a brief song of response, but I'm going to offer this prayer, and um, if we can pray for you individually, we would love to do so. Let's take a second and let's pray together. And I just want to say thanks this morning. Thanks for your word, and thanks for allowing us to live honestly with you, and thank you, Father, also, that there is a... um, that there is a a word that you speak to us when we come to you. And that word is peace. So I'm asking now, Father, that you would speak peace to your people. Some of us come in with all sorts of trouble at work, in our marriages, in our homes. Um, You would speak peace to your people. Some of us come in with a a level of anxiety or a, a level of frustration. God, you would speak peace to your people. Whatever it is, God, would you help us to set it before you, lay it down before you, and hear your word of peace. And then may our hearts respond to the invitation to believe and to rejoice. And I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.